Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. As we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we have made it into chapter 13, which is full of parables from Jesus, many of them very familiar to us, some of them maybe a little less familiar. I said sort of with a smile last Sunday that my sermon outline was just written for me last week. It just couldn't have been simpler and easier to put that sermon together. It was so straightforward. And then this week I was working on this sermon and I had the exact opposite experience. It was a far, far more difficult sermon to put together. And so I want to just upfront give credit to Don Carson. I am relying on him for my points and for a lot of how I'm putting this together because I was just struggling. So uh, credit to Don Carson for my points. Uh, I'm going to read the text and lest I confuse you, with chapter 13, uh, you have to sort of jump around in this chapter to tie everything together. So I'm not going through this chapter in, in chronological order in which it's written. Uh, we're going to cover every verse, Lord willing, but we're not going to go in order. So we're going to be skipping around to kind of fit things together. And so you may want to jot some of these basic things down. It's also on the group me. The outline is on the group me if you're in the group me. But I just want to give you the, the, the verses we'll be covering. Uh, and, and then I'll, I'll read the text and we'll pray. So I've titled the sermon, The Double-Edged Purpose of Parables. The Double-Edged Purpose of Jesus' Parables. The text is Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, then 34 and 35, and then 51 and 52. Let me say that again. 10 to 17, 34 and 35, and then 51 and 52. And I'll go ahead and give you the sermon points. There's just two. They're from Don Carson. I think they're very helpful. I couldn't say it better than this. Here they are. Number one, Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, His message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Verses 10 through 17, particularly. Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, His message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Point number two, Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, His message reveals things previously hidden in Scripture. So number two, Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, His message reveals things previously hidden in Scripture. Can you already tell it's going to be one of those sermons? Can you tell already like, oh, this is going to be a little bit, what's going on here? This is a little bit strange. So let me read the text for us. Keep in mind what those points have said, and then we will pray. Matthew chapter 13, this is the section that comes between the telling of the parable of the sower and the explanation. I'm actually going to start at the beginning of the chapter so we get the flow of thought. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold some sixtyfold, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance." 
But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Let's skip to verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I don't want to just make this point again, but I just, I just have to say, this is a very challenging set of texts to understand. I, I'm just bearing witness this week. It may be easier for some in this room than it was for me. This was a challenging text to try to put together what does Jesus mean. So let's pray for His illumination. Heavenly Father, some parts of Your Word are so straightforward and immediately obvious. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank You, Lord, for the clarity of such central texts as John 3.16. But Lord, some of Your words are more challenging. Even your own scripture says, the Apostle Peter says that in Paul's letters, there are some difficult things to understand, which the ignorant and unlearned twist to their own destruction. And there is no question that this is one of the more challenging things that Jesus said in this part of Matthew. So God, I pray that we would not be tripped up and misunderstand this text. I pray for not a twisting of scripture, but an illumination that we would be humble and receptive to what your word really says, even if it challenges us, especially where it challenges us is where we need to hear your word challenge us. So God, I pray that we would not be the same, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, that we would be moved to gratitude if you've given us ears to hear. And if we do not yet have ears to hear, that we would have a longing, a desire, a passion to draw near to you with humility, that you would open our blind eyes, and take away the deafness of our ears to your message and your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, why did Jesus teach in parables so often? If you read Paul's letters, you don't find parables. <laughs> Paul is not a guy telling parables. Why does Jesus have so many parables, especially in this section of Matthew? It may interest you to know you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four Gospels. The first three are called synoptic because they have a similar optic, a similar vantage point, a similar perspective. John is a little bit more unique. John contains zero parables of Jesus. 
Not one parable of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Most of the Gospels, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, have all the parables, and Matthew puts many in this one section. Why such a high level of parables in this brief section? And here's the first reason, and I grant you, this is a challenge to all of us. If this point is just obvious and sits easy with you, I would say you need to think about it more carefully. Here is again, point number one. Jesus tells parables because, in line with Scripture, His message blinds, deafens, and hardens. He tells parables to aid people in their blindness, deafness, and hardness. That's one of the reasons He tells parables, is so that people would see and not understand. So people would hear and not perceive. That is one of the reasons he tells parables. How about that? That, that, That's an amazing thought right there. So Jesus tells parables both to reveal and to conceal. And the first point could not be clearer. He tells parables in part, it's a double-edged sword. It's the name of the sermon. It's a double-edged sword of parables. One edge of the sword is negative. His parables conceal the truth to those who do not want to hear it. And guess what? For those who have ears to hear and want to hear it, it makes the truth more vivid and more powerful and easier to understand. So it's a double-edged sword. For those who want to know more, they will have more. To those who do not want to hear, the parables will blind, deafen, and harden those individuals. Now, I don't want to miss obvious things that are going on here. And if you just heard last Sunday's sermon, it would be easy to miss this. It's so easy to miss this. We think that the parable of the sowers was really obvious. I just said it was a few minutes ago. It was an easy outline. It was a very simple thing to look through. But let's not miss something crucial to the text. Jesus did not interpret the parable of the sowers to the crowd. I want you to think about what that means from a public speaker perspective. Jesus got up in front of a crowd of tens of thousands, no doubt. I mean, many thousands. And what does he say to them in this open place out on that boat? What does he say? He says, there's a farmer that went out with some seed, threw seed on some path, birds ate it. Seed here, sprung up and died on the rocky soil. Threw some over here, the thorns got it. Threw some over here, there was a pretty good crop. Amen, let us pray. That was the end of the sermon. The sermon ends in verse 9, and that's the end of the sermon. He gave a parable without an interpretation. Do you see how that's going to further aid the blindness of the blind? Because what does that even mean? It becomes a riddle rather than a clear illustration. Do you see? Because a riddle is something that's not yet interpreted. They give you a puzzling statement and then it's left to you to figure out what does it mean. And if you don't care about Jesus and you don't care what he has to say and you're just using him for free food and miracles, are you going to stick around to figure out what the parable means? No, I I, I got what I want. I'm out of here. The parables are going to harden the hard-hearted more. They're going to deafen the deaf even more. For those who don't really care about what Jesus has to offer, the parables are going to make you more annoyed by Jesus. Just what is that about? He told a bunch of uninterpreted stories that don't make any sense. We know how farming works. What are you doing sitting here telling us about a farmer throwing seed? But guess what happens? To those who have ears to hear, for those who want to know more, the disciples and a few others with them, they go to Jesus after the public speaking and they ask for further information. Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? Why these riddles? And Jesus goes, I'll tell you the reason. And he interprets the parable of the soils to a small group, not to the crowd. You see? For those who want to know more, the parables are going to illuminate the gospel very clearly. There's four ways to respond to the gospel. You can be like a path that's hard as a rock and you don't care about Jesus and the birds take it away. You can be like rocky soil. You embrace it with joy, but there's no depth and root. You fall away after a time. You, you receive the gospel and you look like you're really walking with Jesus, but then the love of pleasure and cares of this world and the love of money choke the word and it's unfruitful. But those who truly give their heart to the Lord by God's grace... They produce fruit, and that's the evidence that they are truly born again, and that fruit is an abiding, lasting fruit. How clear is that for those who stick around 
afterwards and ask and find out more. So Jesus' parables have a double-edged purpose. They blind those who are blind, and they open the eyes of those whose eyes want to be opened. Do you see how this is an interesting thing that's going on in this particular text? You, you Look at verse 10. You can see the reason why they asked the question. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, let me say, I, I think Jesus used parables a lot in his preaching. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You build a house on a rock, you build your house on a sand, there's a parable there. Jesus used parables, the straight gate, the narrow way. He used parables regularly, but he uses them more regularly at this point in his ministry than he ever has at any point so far. And the reason I argue that is you have a look at verse uh, 34, look at verse 34 of the chapter. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables, indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. The reason the disciples come up and say why all the parables means something new is happening. You get this? He's been ministering for two years. If this wasn't new, the disciples wouldn't be asking about it. Are you following me? They are asking why all the parables that are not interpreted because this is a new thing. Jesus is telling almost exclusively parables and he's not interpreting them to the crowd. This is new. Why is Jesus doing this? And the answer is, it's judgment on hard-hearted Israel. That's the answer. He's been ministering in Galilee for almost two years at this point, a couple of years or so, and he's done a lot of miracles, a lot of works, and guess what? The people are not wholeheartedly receiving the message of the kingdom. They're not doing it. And so Jesus says, okay, from now on, you get parables, uninterpreted, which is a sign of judgment on those who don't want to hear. Have you ever thought of parables this way? This is the way it worked. Jesus spoke many parables now because the people did not want to hear what he had to say, and so he hid the truth. Jesus was not going to cast his pearls before pigs. He's applying his own text. If you don't want to hear the, the, the pearls of the kingdom, I'm going to hide them in uninterpreted stories. And if you really want to know, you can come ask me afterwards and I will tell you all you want to know. But how many stuck around to ask? A minority. A minority, a remnant essentially stuck around to ask him about those parables. Let me just quote someone so you don't think I'm making this up. Tom Schreiner, solid New Testament scholar, quote, parables are told so that people may see without grasping what they see. They may hear without comprehending what they hear. God judicially hardens those who have resisted the truth about the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus. The location of this account in the gospel, chapter 13, is significant for the statement on hardening comes after the Pharisees and the people have heard Jesus's message many times and have rejected it. That's the location of where we are at this point. So let me give you just a simple uh, a simple outline here of this part of the text, verses 10 to 17. I want you to look with me so you can see it. Again, I'm borrowing heavily from Don Carson on this outline because I did not discover this on my own. Verses 10 and 12, okay, so he, he's asked why all the parables. His, his initial answer may seem puzzling. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he answered them, to you, that's the disciples, those who really want to know, to you, this is verse 11, it has been given to know the secrets or mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them the majority of the crowd, it has what? Not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Do you hear what he's saying there? Those with ears to hear who want more, they're going to get more. To those who have sealed ears, they're going to lose even what they think they have. Okay? Now, Jesus is saying there's a... Div Why do you speak in parables? Answer number one, verses 11 and 12 because there's a division, a growing division in the crowds. There are you who receive and those who reject. 
So why am I speaking in parables? Because there's a, there's a split response to my ministry. That's why I'm speaking in parables. And then he, he breaks the split response, the positive response, and the negative response into pieces. So if you look, verses 13 to 15 is the negative response. He's going to explain the negative response in verses 13 to 15. And you can probably guess, verses 16 to 17 explains the positive response to Jesus from the disciples. Does everybody follow that? So verses... 11 to 12, there's a split response. 13, he gives the negative side, 13 to 15. Then the positive side, 16 to 17. Once you see that, this text really starts to come a little bit more alive. Verse 13, let's look at the negative response to the gospel. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I want you to hold your spot here and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, where he's quoting from. Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just add a couple of words that I think are worth mentioning. You remember that text in Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, when Paul says that we are an aroma of life to some and Christ to some, and we're a stench of death to others? But it's the same truths. So this goes back to what I just talked about in Sunday school for those who are in their last hour. When we say what is true, there is always going to be a mixed response to what the Scripture says. And I think sometimes we think we can fix it. I think sometimes we think if I could just say it the right way, if I just prayed hard enough, if I just got the words exactly right, I could convince anybody. At the end of the day, if I could just get it just right, if I could say it just the most convincing way, I could persuade everybody. And the answer is not even Jesus did that. That's, that's not, we're, we're always going to meet with the, with the split response. And so the same truths that we represent and believe are going to be an aroma of life to some and the smell of death to others. And listen, we can't, I know I say this a lot, we cannot edit or change the message to try to make it smell appealing to everyone we know because we will lose Jesus in the gospel. And the pressure is ever increasing. The pressure is ever increasing. You'll be canceled. You'll be called names. You might be fired from your job, whatever it might be. We cannot. I mean, you understand, I'm a wimp as a Christian. You understand how many Christians have lost their lives for the truth? I, I talked about Latimer and Ridley who were, who were burned at the stake in Oxford. They, they died at the stake rejecting, rejecting the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation at the Lord's Supper because they rejected the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which we also reject, and they did not believe in the bodily uh, reality of Jesus that the bread and wine is actually His blood and uh, body, literally. Because they rejected that doctrinal issue, they paid with their blood and their life. So, so listen, we, we're often kind of wimps in our culture today compared to what people have faced in the past. Past, This is nothing new. Jesus said there's going to be a mixed response. There's going to be a diversity of responses. When Jesus was born, remember he goes into the temple, baby Jesus goes into the temple. Remember Simeon? Simeon said to Mary that her son was, quote, appointed for what? The fall and rise of many in Israel. Is that a split response? Some people are going to stumble over Jesus. He's a stumbling stone. Some people are going to be transformed by Jesus. But we've got to continue to be faithful to Jesus. And let me just say, this is a point of application that's going to run through the sermon. 
Your greatest enemy in life, and mine too, is a hard heart against biblical truth. And this is what Jesus is warning against. The worst thing you can get is not cancer. The worst thing you can get is a hard heart to Jesus and a long life of prosperity. That's the worst thing you can get. Happy circumstances with a callous spiritual heart, anything but that. Anything but that. And the Lord is merciful so often to give us unsettling circumstances to awaken us to our need for Him. So as I look at Isaiah 6, we, we love this ch- text, right? He sees the Lord. He calls out, woe is me. The cold touches his lips. Who will I go? Who will go for me? Who will, who will I send? He says, here am I. Send me in verse 8. And then we get our text right here. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, etc." Let me just paraphrase here because it will take all day to read all these texts. Let me just say this. Isaiah gets called into the ministry after being greatly humbled by God's presence in the temple. And Isaiah says, I'll go. And the Lord says, okay, here's, here's your job, Isaiah. He's writing in the 700s BC when Assyria is a major threat and Babylon's coming in a century. That's where Isaiah lives, okay, in the, in the 700s, late 700s BC. Isaiah gets this call and the Lord says, okay, Isaiah, be faithful to my word. Preach my word. It's interesting, during the Great Awakening, the book of Isaiah was called the fifth gospel because there is so much of Jesus and the gospel in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah was an evangelistic gospel, a prophet. He was a gospel-full prophet. And guess what happens? As Isaiah presents Jesus in a prophetic form, here's what's going to happen. The vast majority, Isaiah, of Israel is not going to listen to you. They're going to harden their hearts, deafen their ears. They're not going to pay attention. And, you, and then Isaiah asked in verse 11, how long, O Lord? Okay, bad news. My ministry starts with a whimper. I'm going to be preaching for what? Five years? I'm going to get rejection for five years? What, maybe 10? I can maybe deal with 10. But not, don't say 40 years, because Isaiah ministered for decades. Just, Lord, say it's just the first half of my ministry. And then let's say the numbers go up after that, and everyone's loving what I'm saying. The Lord says, okay, here, here's how long you should do that. Preach the truth that hardens the majority of Israel's hearts until I judge Israel with Assyria and wipe the place clean and exile the people into foreign lands. Preach until the cities lie waste without inhabitant. Can you imagine that call to ministry? Your ministry is going to be successful in God's eyes and a complete failure before other people, and people are going to reject you until you die, and there's tradition. Church tradition is sometimes very sketchy. I can't say this is for sure true, but there's a decent chance that tradition is true, that Isaiah, as an old man, when the later king was risen, he he was hiding from his persecutors inside a hollowed-out tree. Have you heard this? And they wrapped the tree in, in rope, and they cut the tree down. In other words, they cut him through while he's in the tree. And that's probably what Hebrews 11 is referring to when it says some were sawn in two. It's, it's likely referring back to, to some of that tradition about Isaiah. So Isaiah met that lifestyle. That's, that's what he faced, being faithful to God's word. And there's a, there's a promise of hope at the end, but that is the call to ministry that Isaiah receives. Well, let's turn back to our text. As we turn back to Matthew 13, let me mention this. That text about Isaiah, preach until they no longer hear and they no longer see, you know, that, that really depressing text, right? That text is quoted in six crucial books of the Bible, in six crucial places. And it's the first six books of the New Testament. It's quoted in, in the same spot in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this turning point in his ministry, right, where he's, the crowds are turning against him. Same spot in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's quoted, Isaiah 6, in a crucial part in John 12, the last time Jesus is in public ministering before he goes to the Last Supper. It says Isaiah 6 is being fulfilled as he's being rejected. Then the book of Acts ends with this quote from Isaiah 6. That's Paul sitting in Roman 
house arrest, and what do they quote? This people goes on seeing but not understanding, hearing but not perceiving. That's how the book of Acts ends. And how does Romans deal with it? Romans 11, that crucial text on sovereign election, what does it say? You've made the heart of Israel dull. You've, saved, you've elected a remnant, but you've, you've left the heart dull, and, and many have turned away. So it's a crucial text in the first six books of the New Testament. Why is it that people turn away from the truth? Let me quote a familiar text. Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 4, the last chapter Paul wrote before he died as a martyr, he tells young Timothy, I, I charge you in the presence of God and of the angels, preach the word in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with all authority. He says all that. Then he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And then he says, they will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into lies. Why did so many in Israel reject the message of Jesus? Here's why. The way Jesus was teaching was not in alignment with their expectations and therefore they didn't like it. They didn't want it to be true and therefore they hardened their hearts and the majority chose to reject what Jesus said. So the exhortation to us is this. If there's part of Scripture that makes us uncomfortable, we need to go toward it. Don't hide from it. Go toward it. If it's the doctrine of hell, study what Jesus said about hell. If you're uncomfortable, if you're struggling, go there. See what Jesus said and pray that God open our eyes and help us to perceive the justice and goodness of God, even in the most challenging doctrines in Scripture. We go towards the difficulties. We pray for illumination and we pray for open eyes and ears because otherwise we can be tempted to go the other way, hiding from the truth and covering our eyes and ears. I already quoted this verse, James chapter 1. James was the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church for 30 years before he was martyred. He says this, receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word, the gospel, which is able to save your souls. Receive it with, with meekness. All right, so that's point number one. Jesus tells parables because in line with scripture, Isaiah 6, his message blinds, deafens, and hardens. Now let's get to the positive side of parables. Point number two, Jesus tells parables because in line with Scripture, we're going to see that Psalm 78, His message reveals things previously hidden in Scripture. So it conceals and it reveals. And I will tell you, this for me was the hardest part of the sermon to prepare for. I'm going to try to make this simple because this was very hard to understand. But look at verses 34 and 35. This is the positive side of the parables. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is the prophet Asaph, who wrote a number of Psalms. Quote, he quotes Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I tried practicing this part. I'm still not sure it made sense. So here we go, okay? Just, 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 I hope this makes sense. Try to pay attention because it may, I'm going to try, I may fail to try to make this clear. Um, I think this is what this text means. Asaph writes one of the longer Psalms, Psalm 78, not as familiar of a Psalm. It tells the history of Israel. I'm not going to go there right now. You can read it on your own time later today. It's a long Psalm telling the history of Israel, the Exodus and all those things. And here's what Asaph does. He tells Israel's history, emphasizing two things the continual rebelliousness of the people and 
the continual faithfulness and kindness and mercy of God. Now, here's why. Why does he start that psalm telling the obvious history we all know about the Exodus and on and on? Why does he do that? Why does he say, I'm going to open my mouth in parables and utter what has been hidden from the foundation of the world? What's hidden about Psalm 78? It's a very straightforward historical psalm telling you things that we all know from the story of Israel. What's hidden about it? What's he revealing that's new or fresh or what was hidden? What, what does that mean? This, this, this was very hard to understand. Here's my best take on what's going on here. I think, this is, I think this is what's going on. Asaph knows, and tell me, are there different ways you can tell the history of a nation? Are there very different lights you can shine on a nation? Can you tell American history? I'll be honest. I, I kind of grew up with a little bit of an overly Photoshopped view of American history right? So the founding fathers were a little bit photoshopped. Like, they were kind of like these just like flawless heroes when I was growing up. You know, you think of it like that. And now, recent days, there's been a flip-flop where everything that's talked about the founding fathers, they were just pure evil to the core, right? So you, you, you see how there's different ways to tell American history. I could, I could, I could tell you a five-minute version of American history right now that would sound like you all want to just, you know, feel so patriotic. And you could tell a five-minute version that sounds really negative, right? And both might be saying true things, right? The question is, how do you put these things together? Here's what Asaph, I think, is saying. We all have a tendency to Photoshop our own lives and our own histories and to see the best and to ignore the worst. Do we not have a tendency to put the best face forward and ignore the worst? Asaph says, I'm going to tell you a parable. I'm going to reveal something hidden from the foundation of the world. Here's what it is. I'm not going to Photoshop our ancestors and our past as Israel. I'm going to show you all the warts and flaws of our people, and I'm going to show you that we are going to be tempted to fall into the same sins they did and to forget God in the same way they did, and we don't want to repeat their mistakes. Let us never read history to say, I was basically good, and God sent me a bunch of terrible trials. God seems mean. I seem virtuous. Don't tell your story that way. Asaph says, no, here's the story. I am a moral failure apart from Christ. I deserve death, damnation, and hell apart from Christ. Christ in his mercy has rescued me and saved me and redeemed me. God is good. I am a sinner saved by grace. Do you see how different the story is told in that way? Asaph says, here's what I don't want you to do. Don't Photoshop the failures of our ancestors because we will be likely to fall into the same sins ourselves. Okay? That's why he's revealing a hidden mystery. Okay? That's complicated enough. But then there's another level here. I wasn't going to tell this. I'll tell this. This is just too silly. I heard this from a Presbyterian pastor. It made me laugh. You, some of you have heard this before. If you take the words, I'm not trying to make a joke, but it is funny. I'm trying to make a point. If you take the word Presbyterians and you rearrange the letters, you get the name Britney Spears. That is something you could hold on to for many years, okay? Uh, <laughs> that, that's funny, okay? So now, I, I, want, I want you to think about this. The same exact letters put in one configuration mean one thing. The same letters reconfigured... Something else, okay? I don't think she's Presbyterian the last time I looked, okay? I don't, I don't think she is, although it would be great. I don't think that's where she's at. Here, here's my point. What, what Asaph and what Jesus are doing is this is what they're doing. They're looking back at the Old Testament, and they're working with the same letters. That is, the same books, the same history, the same data, the same prophecies, the same, same types and shadows and the same characters, and yet how you configure and put those things together can make a very different picture. Are you following me here? So Asaph takes the history, we all agree on the pieces, the letters, the, the puzzle pieces. And Asaph says, don't misrepresent our history. I'm putting the puzzle pieces together by God's spirit the right way. Our sin, God's grace. And Jesus is fulfilling this line of being a prophet. And he's doing the same thing in his day. And he's saying, listen, Pharisees, we all agree on the Old Testament books. There's no debate between Jesus and the Pharisees on the Hebrew canon. It's the same Hebrew canon we have, just in a different order, but it's the same books, same exact books we have in our Bible as Protestants. Okay, it's the same, same Bible. There's no debate about the, the pieces, the letters, 
right? The, the stuff. The question is, how do you configure the data to make a picture of the future? Which configuration of the letters is right? Do you see what I'm getting at here? You can configure them very differently and make a very different picture, okay? So here's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying to his listeners, all of you have misconstrued the future promises of the Old Testament because you've left out puzzle pieces, right? So you've got the idea there's going to be a new David, but you think he's just a man, not God-man. And you know there's going to be a new Exodus and a new restoration of God's people, but you don't understand the eternal nature of some of this. You don't see, this is important, that the Davidic king is both God and man and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. No one had put that together. So what Jesus does is, go, okay, we all agree these are prophecies and types and shadows, but no one's ever put them together this way. And Jesus configures them and makes a new picture that no one had ever seen before, and it's that the kingdom is going to come in two stages, not one. Even John the Baptist got this wrong, right? The kingdom is a now and not yet. It's an already here, but it's not yet fully consummated, right? So Jesus says, listen, you guys did not put all the pieces together correctly. If you put every piece together of the Old Testament correctly, you will have the revelation of something hidden in plain sight all the way back to Genesis. Something that you just didn't quite see, but it was there in the text all along. When, I, when God said in Zechariah, I think it's around chapters 10 to 12, when God said, they will look on me, Yahweh is speaking, they will look on me, Yahweh, him whom they have pierced, and weep for him as someone weeps for an only son. And on that day, a fountain will be opened in Jerusalem so that they will be able to be cleansed of their former sins. No one had figured out that what that meant was Yahweh would become a human being who would be literally pierced on a cross. No one had put the pieces together that way. And Jesus is saying, hey, I've got a new way to put the pieces together. It's a fresh way. No one's ever done it before, but it's as old as the foundation of the world. Look at verse 35 again. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter Make, that is, I will, make, I will reveal what has been hidden in plain sight since the foundation of the world in the text of Scripture. It's been there all along, but no one had seen it. And Jesus configures it in this new way. And guess what? It's a huge disappointment to the crowd. Why? Nobody wants a crucified Messiah in first century Judaism. No one wants a crucified Davidic king. No one wants that. They want what? One who's going to get Rome out of here, take over political freedom and independence, and give us the life back that we always wanted. And Jesus says, I came not to defeat Rome, but defeat Satan. I came not to hold a sword in my hand, but to take a spear through my side. I came not to crucify my enemies, but be crucified by my enemies. I came to bring the kingdom in seed form first. It's not going to come in with a bang. It's going to come in with a small noise, and it's going to grow like leaven over time. It's going to be like a smallest seed in the garden that sprouts up and becomes the biggest tree in the garden over time. It's going to take over the planet just like Daniel 2 said, the stone cut not by human hands but cut by God will pummel the four kingdom statue of Nebuchadnezzar and all those kingdoms will come down and God's kingdom will grow to become the mountain that takes over the earth. That's going to happen, but it's not going to happen in a bang in 33 AD. It's going to happen over the course of thousands of years as God works out his kingdom purposes and the great commission is preached and people of all nations are hearing about the crucified and risen king and they're coming into the kingdom. But it's not going to be an outward political glorified kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom that is spiritual and working through the church. It's not what you expected and therefore the majority of Israel hated this message. And Romans says the majority of Israel is hardened so that the time of the Gentiles is open. The Gentiles are flooding into the church and then they'll, he'll turn back and the, the, there will be, I believe, a Jewish revival bringing them back into the church as well one day. So that is why the message was hated. Let me say a word here about why 
some respond positively to this message. Look at verses 11 and 12. And, and bear with me as I go a little over time today. V- verse 11 and 12. Why do some respond positively to this message? Verse 11. And he answered them, to you, what? It has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The openness, you got to hear me on this. I know whenever the doctrine of election comes up, people have a thousand questions. I I get it. I I understand. You got to hear me on this. The doctrine of election is not something to be hated. It's the glorious truth. Here's what Jesus says. If you've got ears to hear the gospel, and right now your heart is receptive to Jesus, and you want to submit to his lordship, it's not because you made better use of free will than your friend did. That can't be the answer. It can't be the answer. The answer is God gave it to me. To you it has been given, but to them it hasn't been given. Ultimately, this goes back to God. God opens eyes. He opens ears. He owes it to no one. He gives it to hundreds of millions of people over the course of thousands of years who all deserve hell and instead get eternal resurrection, new creation in his presence. So if you have ears to hear, listen, don't credit that to yourself. Give credit to God. But if right now your ears are deaf and blind, don't blame God. Blame your own sinful heart. Because that's where all of us would be left to ourselves. Let me say this. Do not feel hopeless right now. Never ever make the doctrine of election fatalism. That's not what it is. If you feel like, I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about Jesus. I, don't, I guess God just didn't open my ears. I guess he's just not going to give me sight. Don't ever take a fatalistic approach to this. Jesus would never say that. What Jesus would say is what? Today is the day of salvation. If you will open your eyes right now, you will be saved. If you will receive Jesus right now in this moment, you will be saved. Don't ever think, well, it's just too late for me. There's no hope for me. That's not the way Jesus talks. It's not the way Paul talks. It's not biblical. Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, what are you going to do? You're going to harden your heart? Or are you going to say, Lord, open my eyes more? Anything, whatever it takes, open my eyes more to your truth. Look at verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For I truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Let me say this, two things. Where you live in redemptive history is an incredible blessing. Isaiah did not have the kind of clarity and insight into the gospel that you have. Because Isaiah saw it in shadow form. Isaiah did not know that a man named Jesus of Nazareth would be crucified on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate. He didn't know that. He didn't know he'd be crucified and laid into Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin's borrowed, never used before tomb. He didn't know that. He didn't know women would discover the tomb empty on Easter morning. He didn't know that. He knew some of it in predictive form, but he did not know it with the clarity you have. Praise God for where you are right now in redemptive history. Many righteous people longed to see what you see and didn't see it. Many, many prophets wanted to see what you see and they, they never saw it. First Peter 1 says even angels longed to look into these things. They, even the prophets could not put it all together with the precision that even a young Christian can today. But, but I want to zero in on this here. The word blessed are your eyes for they see. Do you see that verse 16? Blessed are your eyes for they see. Okay, flip a page over to chapter 16. A couple pages to your right. It's chapter 16. I want to see that same word blessed and how Jesus explains why some blessed eyes see and why it owes to God's grace. Remember this? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Look at verse 16. Simon Peter, never, never one to hold back a thought, says, 
you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now stop right there. Did Peter, can we all take a moment? Peter got it right, ladies and gentlemen. Peter got it right. This is a, Peter, way to go, man. He's about to say something really bad in about three verses, but right now, Peter, way to go, okay? So how did Peter get it right? And look at verse 17. Jesus doesn't say, because you're smart or whatever. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed, same word, right? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but what? My Father who is in heaven. Peter, you do. You see something blessed with those eyes. Your eyes can see, and guess why? The Lord revealed it to you. The Father, it wasn't you making a better choice. It was the Father revealing it to you. You can't brag about flesh and blood. Flesh and blood did not open your eyes. God, by a miracle of regeneration, opened your eyes, Peter. Give glory to God for the fact that you can see. I think that's a, I think that's a direct connection here. Okay, now let's go back. I'm going to try to come to a conclusion here. We've got to go to the very end of the text. Verses 51 and 52 is where I want to uh, conclude. After Jesus has told a lot of parables, he says this in sort of conclusion, verse 51, to the, to the disciples, he says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, again, I, I just can't help but smile because they, they don't understand all these things. <laughs> they understand some of it. There's no way any of us have understood all of what's going on in Matthew 13, but they say, yeah, we got it. We, we got it, Jesus. And verse 52, Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Do you see how this connects to what all has happened? Okay, just see if I can put this together. Did Asaph in Psalm 78, did he go back to some old truths and bring out some new points? Yes. Did Jesus go back here and go into the Old Testament about the kingdom and David and all these things he's going to talk about throughout all of Matthew? Does Jesus reach back to the Old Testament and bring out some new insights? Yes. That's what he's talking about. Now that he's revealed the truths of the kingdom to us, we have treasures old and new. We have treasures from the Old Testament and treasures from the New Testament. And we shouldn't make fun of either of those testaments. We shouldn't minimize either of those testaments. We don't unhitch ourselves from either of those testaments. We hold both of them. And we bring treasures out of the new and out of the old. And we show how they interconnect with each other, how they interpret each other, how the new fulfills the old. And we don't, we're not embarrassed by the old. We, we don't throw it out. We show, we show how the, the old led forth to the new, and the new is the fulfillment of the old. And so, here's the concluding application. I'll quote Daniel, uh, Daniel, uh, David Sean O'Donnell, I think is his name. He says this, here Jesus says, not only have you been given, but are you giving in response? If you've been given an understanding to grasp the secrets and mysteries of the kingdom, if you've become a scribe trained in the truths of the kingdom, then you must bring the treasures out to share them with others, whether old or new. We got to bring out what we know and we've got to share them with others before he was martyred, listen, Stephen, before he was martyred, Stephen spoke from the old revelation of the Old Testament, told the whole history of Israel, and did he make some new application and points about Jesus? Yes, he did. He was a faithful witness who brought out of his treasure, treasures new and treasures old. He connected Jesus with the Old Testament and he was killed for it. And that was a glorious moment as he looked up and saw the heavens open and Jesus sitting or standing at the right hand of God. So we need to be amazed at how God has put his text, his Bible together. It is intricate. It is complex. It is glorious. It is endless. It is something that we never exhaust. When people say they're bored with the Bible, I'm like, 
I understand point zero 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 one percent maybe half of that of what's going on in the Bible. I, I feel like we have an endless universe to explore, and the, the, the intricacies and connectedness of the Old and New Testament is fascinating and worthy of a life of study. And once we have seen things, we owe it to share it with those we love and who need to hear it too. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, as we bring out of our treasures things old and new, things from the old covenant era and from the new covenant era, and we connect them together, as we show that the Old Testament contains many promises made, and the New Testament shows promises kept, and all ultimately culminating in the person of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, God, I pray that we would be so enthusiastic and impassioned about these truths, that we would not share them out of duty, that we would share them because it's irresistible, it's exciting, it's what gets us up in the morning, it's what we want to know about and think about and share about and model in our behavior to others in kindness and truth and love and humility. Now give us an excitement to share what we know from your word, not, not just a dutiful slap on the wrist, I, I should probably be better at you know, sharing this with people than I am. Help it to be irresistible that, that we want to share the treasures that we've seen in your word with those that we love, those that we meet, those that we work with, those that we're in class with, those that we work alongside or that are in our family. Help us, Lord, to find avenues and opportunities when appropriate with boldness and courage to share the treasures new and old. And be with us now, Lord, as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.